0: So it is a blessing this morning to have electricity. So far. (laughs) If you weren't here last week, it was mentioned in the video, our entire neighborhood lost electricity during the second service last week while apparently a vehicle down the road wrecked into an electrical pole. And it ended up being quite a unique church service. Uh, When the power went out, there were a number of elders and deacons who quickly got up and scrambled around trying to investigate. I did my best to project my voice since the speakers weren't working so that the back of the sanctuary could hear. Uh, Thankfully, a little bit later, Larry Moody came up with a battery-powered PA system and rescued my voice so I could preach again today. Uh, And at the end of the service, we had a, a really beautiful acoustic set for our closing song. All in all, despite there being no electricity, it ended up being a great service. But for the record, I'm glad we have electricity again today. But there was something unique that happened last week. With all of the background noise gone, with all the white noise from our electronics and our air conditioning system, with all of that removed, there was an intimacy that set into the room. Everybody had to lean forward in their pew just a little bit, and our closing song was also quite a very intimate thing. It reminded me of the Matt Redman song from the 1990s, The Heart of Worship, when the music fades and all is stripped away. We were still left with the opportunity to worship the Lord. Sometimes it's good for us to take a step back, to strip away all the distractions, to silence the noise in our lives, and then the only thing that is left is our pure devotion to the Lord. And in our passage today, we're going to see how dangerous it can be when our religion drowns out our devotion. We're going to see three dangers of religion, three ways that religion can drown out our devotion. If you would, open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, grab your outline, as you can see the three dangers we're going to see, the three dangers of religion. Number one, the most significant is the danger of missing the Messiah. Number two, the danger of prioritizing appearances. And number three is the danger of overlooking true devotion. So again, grab your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 12, and follow along with me as we look first at that first danger on your outline, the danger of missing the Messiah, Mark chapter 12. Let's look first, and really at the end of verse 34, as we're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you remember from last week, If you could hear the sermon, if you were in the second service, Jesus was approached by various groups of religious leaders, and they had some questions for him. And what we saw last week is Jesus answered all of their questions in such a way that verse 34 tells us, after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions so now the religious leaders, they're done with their questions. But what we see in verse 35 is now Jesus has a question for them. Mark chapter 12, notice verse 35 says, And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, and here's his question How is it that the scribes say that the Christ or the Messiah? is the son of david so jesus has just gone through this q and a session with the religious leaders and now he has a and a session of his own the questioned has now become the questioner the challenged is now the challenger and jesus comes asking a question notice about the christ about the messiah the Jews, as you probably know, were awaiting their Messiah. They were awaiting the Christ. The religious leaders were awaiting, should have been awaiting the Messiah. And so Jesus here asks them a question about the Messiah. He asks them about what the scribes meant. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? David. Now, this idea that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the son of David is rooted in dozens of passages in the Old Testament. It was well known that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a descendant of David. The scribes also believed that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. It's true, but it's also incomplete. Because notice what Jesus says, not only is the Messiah a descendant of David, but he's also superior to David. Notice verse 36. Jesus, continuing here, says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So here to prove that the son of David, the Messiah, is David's superior, Jesus quotes here from Psalm 110. Psalm 110, a messianic psalm. Now I want you to notice what Jesus says here. Quoting from Psalm 110, he says, The Lord, that is the Father, God the Father, said to my Lord, that is, the Messiah, sit at my right hand, the Father's right hand, the place of highest honor and authority, until I, the Father, put your, the Messiah's enemies, beneath your feet. Let me go through that again, because this is key for you to understand what all the pronouns to whom they're referring The Lord, that is God the Father, said to my Lord, that is David's Messiah, sit at my right hand, at the Father's right hand, until the Father puts the Messiah's enemies beneath his feet. Again, Jesus here is quoting Psalm 110 showing the undeniable fact that the Messiah is David's Lord, or his superior. Notice this is where Jesus goes in verse 37. He says, David himself calls him, the Messiah, Lord. So in what sense is he his son? If you follow Jesus' argument here, there's this major unstated premise that you don't call someone Lord unless they're superior to you, right? You don't call someone Lord who is your inferior or even on your same social sphere. But you only call someone Lord if they are in a superior position to you. Jesus then uses Psalm 110 to show that David addressed the Messiah, his son, his descendant, as Lord. And so the conclusion here is that David is the inferior of the Messiah, even though the son of David is his descendant. So therefore, the Messiah must be more than David's human descendant. He is the son of David, a human descendant of David, but he must be more than just the human descendant of David. It helps us also when we recognize, when we understand that the term Lord, especially in Mark's context, the term Lord is often used as the title of divinity. So, what Jesus is doing here is you unpack his argument. He's using Psalm 110 to show that the Son of David is no mere man. He's the Son of David, but he's also God. The Messiah is, yes, David's Son, but he's also David's Lord at the same time. Now, no doubt, as Jesus Lays out his argument here from Psalm 110, he raises this question so that his listeners will associate him with the Son of David, the Son of God, the Messiah. This is a bold reference to Jesus' true identity as the Son of David and the Son of God. And notice, by the way, the end of verse 37. And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. I believe this short sentence here is meant to be read in contrast with the religious leaders. The religious leaders we saw last week were challenging Jesus. And here the crowd, the Passover crowd, is enjoying listening to him. Now this passage is a major passage in Jesus' teaching ministry. Not only does Jesus appropriate this title, Son of David, but he claims to be something more, and that is the Son of God. As we think about this passage and how it applies to us, I want you to remember first that remember it's Passover season. Messianic expectations were high. All of the people should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God. Of all the people, the religious leaders especially should have recognized Jesus as the son of David, the son of God, the Messiah. But they didn't. In fact, they reject him. All of the evidence they needed was there, but they missed it. And so the first danger we see here of religion the danger we see in the religious leaders themselves the first danger of religion is the danger of missing the messiah the religious leaders were so caught up in their own worlds in their own rituals and rules that they missed the messiah who was right there in front of their face and that danger can happen not only in first century Israel, but that danger can happen today as well. When people get so caught up in religion and man-made rules and rituals, that they too miss the Messiah, the Savior. So let me pause for just a moment and ask you a question. What do you believe about who Jesus is? Do you believe that he's the son of David? Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who laid down his life on the cross for your sins, to pay the penalty for the sins that you and I committed, and so that through faith in him and in him alone, no religion, no man-made rules, but by faith alone in Christ alone, you're redeemed and reconciled with the Holy God. There's no amount of good works, no turning over a new leaf. There's no ritual or religion that can save you, but it's Christ alone that saves you. My question for you this morning is, do you believe that? Because the first danger we see here in this passage is the danger of missing the Messiah because of religion. That's the first danger. Now let's take a look at the second. As we look at verse 38, This section, by the way, concludes Mark's account of Jesus' public ministry. From here on out, his focus is on his disciples. But notice Mark chapter 12, verse 38 says, In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. Here in his teaching, Jesus continues specifically to warn his disciples about the scribes. Watch out for the scribes. He says, why? Notice verse 38. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Jesus says, be warned or beware of the scribes. And then he lists four things that he wants his disciples to be warned of and to learn from the inappropriate religious conduct of the scribes. Notice the four things. He says, the scribes like or literally desire. They desire, Jesus says, to walk around in long robes. Jesus is here picturing their long white linen garments with fringes that were worn by the priests, the law teachers, the Levites. They wanted to look, to look religious. The second thing he says is they like or desire respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The religious leaders, the scribes, they like to have people call them important titles like rabbi, and teacher, master, and father. In other words, they wanted the people to respect them, and Jesus says, be warned of them. The third thing Jesus calls out for the inappropriate conduct of the scribes, he says, they like the chief seats in the synagogues. The chief seats in the synagogues. They desired to have the chief or the most important seats in the synagogue, those, who were, those that were reserved for dignitaries that faced the entire congregation. From this, we can learn that they, they wanted to be seen. The fourth thing, Jesus calls them out for here is they like or they desire the places of honor at banquets, these special evening meals at which they were seated next to the host. In other words, they wanted preferential treatment. But all four of these desires can be summarized as the scribes loved prominence and high honor from others. That was their external, their outside, their religion. But notice what Jesus says in verse 40. They devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. Chris alluded to this in the announcement video, but hospitality was a big deal in first century culture. And teachers often relied on the hospitality and the generosity of other people for their living. And notice here, Jesus calls out the scribes, these religious leaders, for taking advantage of, for abusing people's generosity and hospitality, even people of limited means like widows. And then finally notice verse 40. He says, And for appearances' sake, they offer long prayers. I want you to notice that phrase for appearances' sake. For the scribes, for the religious leaders, and for the religious today, it's really about appearances' sake. Here the scribes like to make lengthy prayers in order to impress people with their so-called piety. But here again, Jesus calls them out, and notice the last thing he says there in verse 40. He says, these will receive greater condemnation. These scribes, these religious leaders will Jesus says, receive greater condemnation. Jesus calls them out for their ostentatious conduct, which is just a smokescreen for their evil hearts. He says they will receive a greater condemnation. They will be punished most severely, in other words, at God's final judgment. This is a sobering warning. The danger of religion As we think about application, what I want you to notice here is that for the religious leaders, again, it was all about appearances. They prioritized form over substance. What they looked like over who they really were. That's the second danger of religion. It's prioritizing appearances. Religion often cares more about what people think than what God thinks. Religion focuses on the external rather than the internal. This is the second danger of religion. The first is missing the Messiah. The second is prioritizing appearances. Now let's take a look at the third, number three on your outline, overlooking true devotion. Here we see a great contrast to the religious leaders. Notice again Jesus mentioned widows, the scribes, uh, took advantage of widows, and now Jesus lifts up a poor widow as the prime example of what true devotion really is. Notice Mark chapter 12. Let's look first at verse 41. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury, and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Now, keep in mind that, that Jesus is in the temple. He's been in the area known as the court of the Gentiles, and now he's apparently walking into the area known as the court of women. And there in the court of women, there were 13 trumpet shaped receptacles into which people would put their free will offerings. And here Jesus is observing people, he's watching people and how they're putting money into the treasury. And notice what did Jesus see, verse 41, at the end? He he notices many people, many rich people, were putting in large sums. But verse 42 says, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Here we see the famous... and. Beautiful story of the widow's mites. And again, notice the contrast. When Jesus is observing those who are putting their offerings in there for the temple, he sees on the one hand of the rich who are putting in many coins and large sums. But Jesus focuses in on the poor widow. John Mark tells us there in verse 42 that the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. Literally, she gave two lepta. And the lepton was the smallish, smallest bronze coin, Jewish coin in circulation at this time. Two lepta was only worth one sixty-fourth of a day's wage, a denarius. Two lepta is only worth one-sixty-fourth of a day's wage. Mark, by the way, for the benefit of his Roman readers, says that this amounts to about a cent, or literally a quadrant, which is a fraction of a penny. What's amazing is that Jesus highlights this poor widow who was giving two small bronze coins that financially speaking was basically worth nothing. But to Jesus and to God, this small offering was worth much more. Because notice what Jesus says in verse 43, calling his disciples to him. He said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, owned, all she had to live on. Notice Jesus' words here. This woman put in two small copper coins, financially speaking, worth almost nothing. But Jesus says she put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Is is Jesus bad at math? Is he a bad financial investor? Should you hesitate to hand your money over to the Lord? No. No. Jesus operates with a different economics. Jesus points out that the others gave out of their surplus, a word meaning abundance. But the widow, she gave all she owned, everything she had, everything she had to live on. The phrase live on comes from the Greek word from which we get the English, English word Biology. She gave everything in her life, in other words. She gave everything she needed for life. She gave all the resources she had to maintain her life. And in giving to God sacrificially, she ultimately was entrusting her very life to God to provide for her needs. Now, ultimately, this passage is not really about money although money often reveals what we truly value. Jesus is using this poor widow and her example to teach his disciples the value that God places on wholehearted commitment, on wholehearted devotion. One scholar says, worship that costs us nothing is worth precisely what it costs. Worship that costs us nothing is worth precisely what it costs. The third danger we see here of religion is the danger of overlooking true devotion. I love how Jesus holds up this poor widow and her pure devotion, this widow who would have been easily overlooked, and he lifts her up as a model of the kind of worship that God desires. So this is Mark 12, 35 through 44. Let's pull all of this together and discuss application for just a moment. Notice again, there are three stories here in these verses. And in these stories, we, three, we see three dangers of religion. The danger of missing the Messiah, the danger of prioritizing appearances, and the danger of overlooking true devotion. When we put all of this together, consider this. If Jesus, number one on your outline, really is the son of David, the son of God, the Messiah, who is, by the way, calling us, inviting us to follow him, then we should give to him, not the pretense of our devotion, number two on your outline, but we should give to him our pure and genuine devotion. If Jesus really is who he claims he is, the son of David, the son of God, the divine Messiah, then we should offer to him as our worship, not just the appearance of our devotion, but our pure devotion. Again, notice the contrast in the text between the appearance of devotion and true devotion, the appearance of worship and true worship, between external show and internal faith. The dangers in our text this morning were dangers not just for first-century religious leaders, but they're dangers for you and I as well. The religious leaders cared about appearances, Perhaps we who live in the buckle of the Bible belt can fall into the same temptation. We live in a culture like ours, and we're blessed to live in a culture like ours. There's also sometimes the danger to be tempted to follow the Christian subculture and the certain rules and regulations and rituals and religion that often comes with it. There can be a cookie-cutter image of a Christian with unspoken rules of conduct that we're supposed to do. And if we're not careful, we can become more concerned with appearing a certain way than actually worshiping Jesus and giving him our true devotion. So there on the back side of your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider. And my challenge for you this week, your, your one thing is to ask yourself, what are some ways that we can wrongly prioritize the appearance of our devotion in a culture like Dallas? And on the other hand, what does pure devotion to Jesus look like in your life? Matthew Matthew, Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44 prompts us to ask the question, what is pure devotion to Jesus? When all the noise, when all the religion, when all of people's expectations are stripped away, what is left, what remains, and what we see here is that what the Lord wants, what he desires from us all, is our pure and genuine devotion to him you pray with me? Oh, Father, we do confess that just like the religious leaders in the first century, we confess how easy it is for us to fall into religious acts, to care more about appearances than substance. Father, we confess that we feel that temptation each and every day, to look a certain way, to behave a certain way, to care more about what people think of us than what you think of us. Father, thank you for forgiving us when we sin against you. Thank you that when you look on us, you see the very righteousness of your son. Help us to live in light of that fact, in light of that truth. Father, we humbly ask that by the power of your spirit, you would enable us, you would empower us to live lives of true and pure devotion to you. Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask this in Jesus' name.